Our text of emphasis is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. I'll be reading it from the New International Version, if you'd like to follow along as I read. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds and all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the street, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then people will go to their eternal home and mourners go about the street. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Oh boy. After reading that passage, we should probably pray. Dear Lord, please open our hearts and minds so that we can see you clearly through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we continue our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We enter our penultimate week as we enter chapter 12. And if you've been following along in the series, Ecclesiastes is a book with practical advice about topics ranging from work to time to death. The book is attributed to King Solomon, written shortly before his death after a 40-year reign. And after reading today's text of emphasis, we might surmise that those were some those were 40 long, long years. If we were to put the passage of the text of emphasis in, the, in a nutshell, it would be this. Remember God now while you're young and youth and the joy that comes with it are on your side. Because as we get older, life only gets harder and then you die. Despite using poetic language to describe the aging process, for example, when he says people rise up with the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, he's talking about our loss of hearing as we grow older, or when the almond tree blossoms to represent our hair turning white, Solomon presents a very grim picture of aging. And as I've been looking into the book of Ecclesiastes, I've learned that we're not exactly sure who his intended audience was, but many scholars agree that one of the best ways to read the book of Ecclesiastes is to imagine that Solomon is giving advice to one of his sons, his young heirs, the one who will in eventually inherit his throne. I found that this is my favorite way to picture the conversation happening in the book of Ecclesiastes because it's actually, at least to me, adds a little bit of a comedic element to the reading of the passage. Can you imagine you're a young heir and you're terrified of the responsibility of taking over the throne and your dad says, hey kid, here's some advice. Everything's terrible, it's only gonna get worse, and then you die. So nothing really matters. That actually reminds me of a scene from one of the greatest movies in cinematic history, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Now, I don't know if Christmas is a big deal in your house, but it's a big deal in mine, and one of the ways in which we celebrate um, is that we watch Christmas movies together in general, but the Home Alone franchise in particular. And when I'm talking about Home Alone, only one and two, the other, th two, the other three or four don't matter. Um, but arguably, the best one is Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. If you haven't 
watched the Home Alone movies, you've had 30 years, but if you haven't, I'll explain them to you. Um, these movies are about a young boy named Kevin McAllister who lives in Chicago with his rather questionable family. And one Christmas, the McAllisters plan a trip to Paris, but mistakenly leave behind an eight-year-old Kevin at home and don't notice until they're halfway over the Atlantic. The movie centers around Kevin managing his being on his own while defending his home from two burglars. Who remembers the name of the burglars? Harry and Marv. Oh, you guys need to watch this movie, it's so good. But obviously, Kevin is successful, Harry and Marv are arrested, and Kevin is reunited with his family at the end. Christmas is saved, and everybody learns their lesson. Or so we thought, because we needed a second movie. The following year, Kevin's family plans yet another trip, and this time to Florida. And they make sure that they take Kevin along with them to the airport, however, Kevin gets on the wrong plane, and instead of going to Florida with his family, he ends up right here in New York City, where another set of hijinks ensues. There's one particular scene that I want to remind you of, and it's a scene where Kevin is walking around New York City, and he ends up in a not-so-safe neighborhood where he runs into some New York City characters. I think we can all picture what New York City characters are like. You probably ran into a few of them on your way here. Maybe you are one. Um, but these are folks with character, right? And I, frankly, I believe that folks with character is what makes this city great. But to little nine-year-old Kevin, he becomes really frightened when he's encountering folks with character. And he, so he sees this yellow taxi cab, and he runs into it for safety. And his first words out of his mouth are to the cabbie are, it's Gary out there. And then just when Kevin thinks he's safe, the cab driver turns around, and it ends up being this hulking, terrifying-looking man. And he replies, it's not much better in here, kid. And then Kevin makes this face. And that's the face I picture when I read the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I don't know why, maybe it's because Ecclesiastes is not the easiest book to read, and in order to laugh, to keep myself from crying, this is what I picture. I picture Solomon's heir making this face as Solomon doles out this really scary wisdom. I mean, can you imagine being, okay, we can take Kevin off the screen, that's <laughs> But can you imagine being the heir of the greatest, most respected king in all the world? The man who built the temple of God and amassed riches beyond belief. The man who is visited by sovereigns and dignitaries of other lands to pay their respect and to seek his wise counsel. If you're Solomon's heir, you have some pretty big shoes to fill, and no one would blame you if you were terrified. So when this great king offers you some advice, it might come as some relief. And you may even open your heart and say, listen, dad, disinheriting the throne thing, it's kind of terrifying and I could really use from advice, some advice only for the most powerful king in the world to reply, it ain't much better in here, kid. Because no matter who we are or what we do, life happens, age overtakes us, and we essentially fall apart. So even with these flowery images, with this poetic language, Solomon's conclusion is starting to make sense. We literally live in bodies that inevitably fall apart and cause us pain. Pain is inevitable. Remember your creator now, Solomon advises, because it's not gonna get any better. Meaningless, everything is meaningless. But you can understand where Solomon is coming from, right? No matter who we are or what we do, we understand that pain is inevitable. And I'm not just talking about physical pain, and I highly doubt that Solomon was only talking about physical pain as well. This is also emotional pain, and it applies to all of us, even those of us who haven't been called youth in a very long time. 
things fall apart. There was a tweet that went viral over the summer with hundreds of thousands of retweets that read, every day I have to remind myself that this is the job that I prayed for. Which I thought was a very funny tweet, but think about the pain behind that tweet, to be potentially disappointed or burned out by the very thing that you prayed for. Sometimes we build our lives prayerfully, build our lives only to find that it's falling apart. I have a friend who was diagnosed with breast cancer many years ago and went through years of treatment. And thankfully, she's been in remission for the last four years. But she recently told me, Dael, I did everything I could to take care of my body, and I still got sick. I don't know if I could ever trust my body again. Things fall apart. But you can understand where she's coming from, right? Maybe for you it wasn't cancer, but maybe you've built your life carefully and prayerfully only to find that it's fallen apart. Maybe the career that you believed would be fulfilling is slowly stealing your joy and motivation. Maybe the relationship that you believed would last forever and would bring you happiness is only bringing you to tears. Maybe the dreams that you've dream dreamed seem like they'll never ever come true. Or maybe it's not any of these things. But you know where Solomon is coming from, right? You've built your life carefully and prayerfully, and yet you've still experienced pain. Things fall apart. And when we experience pain and heartbreak and disappointment, the first thing we as Christians sometimes do is we question God, and I get it. I'm not gonna say that asking God questions is a lack of faith because I don't believe that it is. I'm full of questions. I think that God made me curious and he loves that part of me and maybe he made you the same way. Although admittedly, asking questions is often frowned upon and uncomfortable for us and I know that it's made people uncomfortable around me. But I take comfort in knowing that even on the cross, Jesus quoted a Psalm of David, Psalm 22, when his life was literally falling apart and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having questions makes total sense because how can our lives fall apart when we've done everything right? When we checked all the boxes, when we crossed all our T's and dotted our I's, and we still find that trouble and pain are inevitable. We've been told this is the way, this is what you should do, this is the right way of doing things and our bodies can still get sick, our families can still be broken and everything can fall apart. Of course we'd wonder where God is because that's just not fair. So Solomon saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless is starting to make a lot of sense, isn't it? If Solomon, one of the greatest men that ever lived who built the temple of the Lord, who God spoke to directly, could experience pain and disappointment and troubles, what about me? Remember God, Solomon said, because it's only gonna get worse and then you die. I appreciate people like Solomon. In Spanish, we say that people like him no tienen pelos en la lengua, which if we translate it literally, it means he doesn't have hair on his tongue, which is a weird and kind of gross way of, of a kind of gross kind of saying, but it's a way of saying that um, this person is not afraid to tell the truth. They see something, and whether you ask for their opinion or not, they tell it like it is. And Solomon tells it like it is. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I appreciate that about Solomon. I think that having this quality requires a bravery that I sometimes do not possess, but certainly wish I did. We need people like this in our lives, don't we? Maybe, maybe while I'm telling you this, you're imagining that person in your life who's willing to tell you the truth. Say things like, girl, I'm not sure that's the best decision, or 
Maybe those pants aren't the best look on you, or you look cute, but let me get some lotion for those elbows. Those are actually direct quotes from my friends. Um, I count myself very lucky to have people in my life who love me enough to tell me the truth. Solomon, the son of David, was like that. No tenía pelos en la lengua. He told it like it is. There was another son of David who had a very similar quality. The son of David, at least that's what they called the man Jesus when he entered triumphantly into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And as crowds gathered, they waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And this was at the end of his three-year ministry. And if we read about his life and ministry, we come to realize that he too was blunt. He told it like it is. No tenía pelos en la lengua. He didn't have a hairy tongue. And there are plenty of, plenty of examples of this. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at drawing water under the midday sun at the well, and he ministers to her, and he tells her about living water, and that once she drinks it, she will never know, know thirst again. And when she says she wants some of this water, Jesus tells her, okay, you can have some, but go call your husband and come back. And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus told it like it is. I work with college students, so essentially Gen Z, and I was told that if you say something very bluntly, bluntly like this, you're supposed to say, no cap, no shade, no teeth. I don't know what that means, but that's what you're supposed to say. So shout out to Gen Z. But Jesus told it like it is. Look at what happens in John chapter 2. And in verse 13, it starts, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their table. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus told it like it is. But he also knew that there was a time and a place for bluntness, that sometimes hearts and minds have to be ready to understand the truth. So the book of John tells us that there, are, there were some hard truths that he kept secret, even from his disciples. But after he was welcomed with palm branches and great crowds in John chapter 12, verse 23, he says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he begins to reveal difficult truths to his disciples and tells them about his eventual death and betrayal. And if you continue to read the book of John, this revelation of his upcoming death is followed by Jesus ministering to his disciples and revealing to them truths that he has never told them before. He washes their feet and he tells them he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. He tells them that even though he's going away, he's not abandoning them, but he's sending them a comforter, the Holy Spirit, to advocate for them. But in the same way that he was honest about the life condition of the Samaritan woman at the well or the injustice carried out by the money changers in the temple, Jesus tells it like it is and is honest about the troubles coming to the lives of the disciples. In John chapter 13, he predicts that one of them, Judas, is going to betray him. And yet he washes Judas' feet, he gives them something to eat, and he acknowledges that Judas will be the one to turn him over to be killed. And in verse 27, John tells Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. A few verses later, Peter, who had begged Jesus not to wash his feet, but to let him wash Jesus' feet, Peter tells Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. I will lay my life down for you. 
And in verse 38 of John chapter 13, Jesus says, will you really lay your life down for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. The time had come to have difficult conversations with his disciples. The time had come to have no hair on his tongue and to tell them of the pain and the trouble to come. So in John chapter 15, verse 18, he essentially tells the disciple, the world is going to hate you. Listen to what he says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a master is not greater than his servant. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours too. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sends me. And Jesus continues in chapter 16, verse 1, and he says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're doing an offering to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you will remember that I have told them to you. Maybe Solomon was right. Remember God now because things are going to get worse. That's not fair. I mean, I'm sure being a disciple was never meant to be easy, but surely they didn't deserve this, to be hated, to be killed. With one notable exception, talk about a group of people who did everything right. They certainly weren't perfect, but who is? But these were men who crossed their T's and dotted their I's and left everything behind. In the book of Matthew describes how two of them met Jesus while they were fishing and they immediately dropped their nets when he said, follow me. They dropped everything and followed Jesus and still there was pain and heartache and trouble. But we know what that's like. We know what it's like to do the right thing only to discover that pain is inevitable and it's not fair. And so sometimes it's hard not to agree with Solomon's conclusion. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So what's the point? I think we can answer that question if we continue reading chapter 16. First, let's recall why Jesus tells his disciples they will experience a really difficult time. And in the first verse, he says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. And in verse four, he says, but I have said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. Jesus knew that while now is the time to have difficult conversation about the trouble and pain coming to his disciples, it was also a time for them to remember. The disciples had grown up as Jewish boys in the first century. They knew their creator and how he had delivered his people from Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea, and how he protected his people throughout history. And not only that, they were with Jesus. They watched Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead. They watched him feed thousands with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. They were in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. When Solomon and Jesus says to remember, to truly remember our creator, it is to see the story of redemption repeat itself over and over again. And now the disciples had redemption right in front of them. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Because if there's anything that we can learn from remembering our Creator, is that trouble and pain is inevitable, but it's not the end. And Jesus reminds them of this in verses 22, 20 to 22, and he says, 
Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And Jesus continues in verse 33 saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These verses are my favorite, but they're not new. They're a reminder. Because to truly remember the creator is to see the story of redemption repeat itself over and over again. So maybe Solomon was right, at least in part. It's meaningless. Not life, not trying our best, not our pain, all those things matter. But our pain, your pain doesn't mean anything about you or your worthiness or God's view of you or whether you did something right or wrong. It just is. But when you know the end of the story, because you've watched the story repeat itself, the eventual, eventually the trouble we experience now is not gonna matter compared to the joy that is to come. And it is coming, it was promised. And I don't know if the pain that you're feeling now is supposed to be there, or if it's meant to teach you something or has a greater purpose. And, and listen, I do believe that God can use our pain to shape and transform us, but honestly, I don't know what the purpose of pain is, and sometimes I don't know if I wanna know. But what I believe is that if we only focus on the pain, we're losing the point. Because the point is that Solomon is trying to make, and what Jesus told his disciples, is that we are to remember. We are to remember that we are in the hand of the one who overcame the world, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That is the point of remembering. The point is that whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever pain you're experiencing right now is not greater than the one who conquered death. It is not greater than the one who overcame the world, and it is not greater than the one who loves you. And he loves you. But this isn't new news either. I actually think that when Jesus says in, in John chapter 16, verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve but, grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He was reminding his disciples and us today just how much he loves us. Because you see, this passage quotes almost word for word the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31. And I'll remind you that the book of Jeremiah is another really, really difficult book. It's a book about pain and trouble when everything the people of God hold dear, holds dear falls apart. But Jesus quoted a passage from chapter 31 almost word for word. Do you recall how Jeremiah chapter 31 starts out? If you don't, I'll remind you. It might do you good to remember. And starting in verse 3 of Jeremiah chapter 31, it says this. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness, and I will build you up again. You, Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out and dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria, and the farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, come, let us go to Zion, to the Lord. And in verse 7, God gives us instructions of what we are to do when we experience pain. This is what the Lord says. Sing for joy, Jacob. Shout for the, 
before the foremost of nations, make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And God continues with his promise, saying, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then the young women will dance and be glad and the young men and old as well. And here's the part that Jesus quoted. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Yes, pain is inevitable. Yes, the world is full of troubles. Yes, things fall apart. But we are to remember, because to remember your creator is to see God's everlasting love in the story of redemption repeat itself over and over again. So church family, this is my prayer today. When you are confronted with the inevitability of pain, may you remember that you are loved with an everlasting love. May you remember that the one who loves you is the one who overcame the world and he has promised to rebuild you. And with that assurance, even in your pain, may you make your praises heard and sing. Amen.